hope you all have the notes for you this morning. Uh, I think I may have preached on this text not long ago, actually, but it comes next after the text for last week, so I want to hit it again, and I'm, I'm not sure it's one of the, in fact, I'm pretty sure it is one of those passages that's good to look at pretty regularly as a Christian, so I feel good about looking at it again this past week, especially the past few weeks. It's been very helpful to me, and I hope it will be helpful and an encouragement to all of you as well. I'm going to read... Uh, Beginning in verse 10 again, uh, as we did last week, so also this week, we need to remember as we approach this passage that Jesus has just described how his followers will experience persecution. That's the key backdrop for the text for this morning. And he taught about this in his last beatitude, as we saw in verse 10, when he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we notice that he switched uh, from the third person to the second person. And he applied uh, that beatitude directly to his followers who were present there on the mountainside with him in verses 11 and 12, where he said, instead of blessed are those who are persecuted, he said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this morning we'll see again, as we saw last week, that uh, Jesus, after giving this strong and potentially frightening instruction to his followers, uh, continued to address them in a personal and direct manner. We saw last week how he said in verse 13, you, and very emphatically, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then he continues the same way in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father is in heaven. Let's begin with a prayer and then we'll try to unpack these verses. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us. I thank you that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came to this earth. Although he was existed in the form of God and did not think it robbery to be equal with God, he, because he was equal with you, Father, and with the Holy Spirit as God. Yet he took on the form of a human being and died on the cross for our sins, having lived a perfectly sinless life for us. And he rose from the dead that we might ever have everlasting life. He, he is seated at your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for us and rules over the whole of existence as our sovereign Lord. And we come in his holy name today. We thank you that you have given him a name that is above every other name. And we are glad to bow to him as our Lord and Savior. And we look forward to the day when all will do so. Whether on their way to heaven or on their way to hell, all will bow the knee to him as he so richly deserves and recognize him for who he truly is. In the meantime, Lord, we're hoping that you will save many, many people 
that we can have the joy of bringing many people with us to heaven. (laughs) And we pray that our journey through this text together this morning will help us, encourage us to that end, to be submitted to your spirit always, to be willing to be used by you always as a witness for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, excuse me, pray these things in his precious name. Amen. I, I once came across an interesting little illustration of what it means to shine for Christ in the world. Uh, the story speaks of a young boy who was about nine years old who was being questioned about his field trip to a, math, a massive cathedral. Uh, one of the questions his uh, teacher asked him was, what is a saint? And after thinking a moment, remembering all those stained glass windows, the boy answered, a saint is a man that light shines through. Now, that's a pretty good metaphor for a saint. Uh, That's the metaphor of light that is descriptive of believers that is the focus of the passage today, as a matter of fact. Uh, Jesus uses this metaphor to describe our witness to the world and There are at least four points, I believe, in this passage that he appears to be making about our witness by means of this metaphor. The first one is that we give off light like him because of our relationship to him. And secondly, we give off light that cannot be hidden. Thirdly, that we give off light that we shouldn't try to hide. And fourth, that we give off light that that brings glory to God. And I hope to show how each of these ideas are clearly asserted or necessarily implied in what Jesus is saying here. When we consider it not only in the context of this text, but in the larger context of scripture that Jesus has in mind. First, I think we can derive from this passage that we give off light like Jesus because of our relationship to him. Notice what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 14. You are the light of the world. Now, we've already seen that he again makes emphatic use of the second person plural pronoun here when he says, you are the light of the world. Um, That may seem kind of odd to them, as we'll see, because they believe Jesus to be the Messiah, and they know that the Messiah is supposed to be the light of the world. So this may have been a little bit odd for them at first to hear the Messiah who's supposed to be the light of the world, telling them that it is they who are the light of the world, and ta- telling them that quite emphatically. When he says, you are the light of the world. So he's saying in this context, you who are my followers, it is you who will be persecuted because of your righteousness, because it is you who are the salt of the earth, and it is you who are the light of the world. That's why you're going to be persecuted. So in this way, Jesus starts to explain further why they will be persecuted, but he also gives them a word of encouragement, I think, in the very fact that he's calling them the light of the world. Because that lets them know that they're not going to suffer pointlessly, but for a grand purpose in in the sovereign plan of God, a messianic purpose. They're going to share in the work of the Messiah, They get to do that. And that's what Jesus is saying when he calls them the light of the world. Now, in order to really get the point of the statement, 
We need to be aware of the progression in Scripture about this concept of light and the Old Testament context and passage that Jesus had to have in mind when he said this comes from prophecy in the Old Testament. And then we see that it applies to the life of Jesus and then through Jesus to the life of the church as well. First of all, the Old Testament prophecies foretold that the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles or to the world, right? Where the Gentiles are. For example, in Isaiah 42, 6, we read, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Now, we've seen in the Beatitudes this huge emphasis on righteousness and being persecuted for righteousness. Well, we see in the Messianic prophecy, right, that I have called you in righteousness, right, and you will be a light to the Gentiles. So these same themes are in Jesus' mind here when he's speaking and to the disciples when he's teaching them. Later on in Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6, we read this. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Now this is Christ speaking, the pre-incarnate Christ. The, the, the amazing thing about some of these texts in Isaiah is it's as though Isaiah was listening in to a conversation between God the Father and God the Son and recording it for us, a conversation about what would be done to save us. And this is the Son, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Son, responding to the Father, right? That's what we're reading here when, when it says, and now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring back Jacob to him, so that all Israel is gathered to him, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So who's the light of the world expected to be? In the minds of the disciples. The Messiah. And they believe Jesus to be the Messiah. He's the light to the Gentiles. He's the light of the world. But what's he say in this passage? He says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. I I, I suspect that was quite alarming to hear when they first heard it. It has to mean at the very minimum, you share in my ministry of being light to the world. It has to mean that at the very minimum, right? Of course, they're not going to die for the salvation of sinners. Only Jesus is going to do that. But they have a share in his messianic ministry in a profound way. We know this applies to Jesus because it tells us very clearly in the New Testament that it does. It applies these kinds of texts to Jesus. And that's the second thing we need to see to understand this statement correctly, that the New Testament shows that the Lord Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of these prophecies. In Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 32, this is made quite clear. And then Jesus takes up this term, I am the light of the world, himself. Um, In Luke 2, beginning verse 25, we read this. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. 
Now, that's a word that means anointed, Christ. That was a messianic title. Mashiach or Messiah is the way it would be said by the Jews, but that translates into Greek as Christ. So he believed he would see the Lord's Messiah. And so he came by the Holy Spirit into the temple, and when the parents, this is Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus, he was there to be uh, circumcised, to do for him according to the custom of law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now we saw in Isaiah, right, who was to be God's salvation to the ends of the earth, the Messiah. When he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, it's saying my eyes have seen the Messiah through whom you will bring salvation. That's what he's saying. And he makes it abundantly clear when he goes on to say, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He has these messianic prophecies in his mind and he is praising God that he got to live to see them fulfilled in his own lifetime. That he got to actually hold the Messiah in his arms. And of course, Jesus agreed that he's the light to the Gentiles, although sometimes he would put it, I'm the light of the world. For example, in John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And again, he said in John 9, 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But But here, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said to his disciples, and through them to us, you are the light of the world. So we have a part to play in his messianic ministry. But notice he said in John 9, 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And he was speaking of his earthly ministry there. How is he in the world now? Well, through the church. And the church then takes up this mantle of being the light of the world. That Christ shows his light through us now. And this is pretty clear when we see that third, the New Testament also shows that these prophecies were not only fulfilled in Jesus, but also in the church that bears witness to Jesus. Uh, Recall here the words of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch of Pisidia when they were preaching there. Well, I'll pick up the text in verse 45 of Acts 13, and you should have all these references in your notes if you pick them up. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. They weren't making converts, but Barnabas and Paul were. (laughs) Everybody was not wanting to listen to them, but listened to Paul and Barnabas. And then we're told that then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, that is a messianic prophecy that we read in Isaiah 49.6 earlier. Paul knows that this applied directly to Jesus, but notice what he's doing here. He's saying, we now are fulfilling this messianic role in service to Christ. It is through him 
uh, that we are having the power to be lights. He is shining through us to, to these Gentiles. See, the, the Jews are envious and everything, and they say, well, here's what's really going on. What's really going on is that the Messiah's work is being done through us, and you reject it, and you don't think you're worthy of receiving it. Well, we're turning to the Gentiles then. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The eternal life that the Jews didn't want, they received. And so it's very clear that they saw themselves as the light of the world in the sense that the true light of the world was working through them. And of course, there's the teaching of the passage before us where Jesus calls his disciples the light of the world. And he has to mean by that, right? You are going to take part in the ministry to which I, as the Messiah, have been called. As my servants, because of your relationship to me, right? So Christians are to be a part of God's plan to take the gospel to the world. That's how we're lights. That's clear from the passages that we've read. The gospel of salvation is going out to the world through us, and that's how we're shining as lights. But, but that's not the only way. It's not just through the message. It's through the way we live. This message must be accompanied by the kind of genuine Christ-like character that Jesus has been describing in the Beatitudes. We shine as light through living Christ-like lives and through sharing the message of salvation through Christ. That's how we shine. Those things go together. We should never have one without the other. There are Christians who think that if they share a gospel message with people, it doesn't matter how they act. And they're wrong. They're not shining as lights if they're sinning while they're sharing the message of salvation. On the other hand, there, it became popular probably, I heard a lot about this in the late 80s and early 90s, about lifestyle evangelism. And I know what people mean by it. What they mean is we shouldn't just proclaim the message, we should live it. But a lot of people started thinking, well, as long as I'm acting like a Christian, I'm shining as a light, and it doesn't matter if I ever say anything. No, 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 no. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. We have to share the message of the kingdom, and we have to live lives that are characteristic of those who belong to the kingdom while we do it. It is in this way that we will shine as a light to the world. In the context, I think this is pretty clear from Jesus' teaching. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this passage, recalls the teaching of Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, on the meaning of this metaphor. And I think it's worth sharing with you. It it may be even in your notes there. Dr. Barnhouse, he writes, the master of illustration. I'm glad there are some out there. I'm not one of them. Uh, Used to explain it this way. He said that when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun, that is here in the day and gone at night. And when the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon, the church, shines, but not with its own light. It shines with reflected light. Our light is a reflected or a derived light. It does not originate from us. That is a great illustration, writes Kent Hughes, as far as it goes. However, I believe the scriptures teach that the light is more than reflected, that we, in fact, become light ourselves. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you who were once in darkness, you were, excuse me, once in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Live as children of light. Somehow, our incorporation in Christ allows us, to some extent, 
to be light, however imperfect. Our light is still derived from him. Not a ray of it comes from ourselves. But it is more than reflected. I found that helpful. It is at a minimum reflected light. But because we are new creatures in Christ, and because we're being conformed to the image of Christ and becoming more and more like Christ, we actually are light in some ways that he is also light. That's what Kent Hughes believes, and I think he's on the right track. But however we conceive of it as deriving from our relationship with Christ, it is clear that we give off light like Jesus because of our relationship to him. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. He is the ultimate light of the world. And we shine as lights only because we trust in him as Lord and Savior and thus seek to be like him, to be a witness for him in the world. So that's the first point. The second one is this. We give off light that cannot be hidden. And Jesus says this in the last part of verse 14. He says, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's describing our light as like the light of a city that's set on a hill. Now, he must be thinking of that city at night when you can see the light, right? A city situated on a hill and lit up at night is often visible for many miles, and its light cannot be hidden. And so are the followers of Jesus whose lives exhibit a righteousness that will always be noticed. If we're living like we should be, if we're living lives that reflect Christ, we will shine and our light will be noticed. It will be. This, as we've already seen, is precisely why Christians can expect to be persecuted. But as we'll see further on, it's also the key to our effective witness for Christ. First, however, let us observe that not only do we give off light that cannot be hidden, but third main point here, we give off light that we should not try to hide. I think this is the emphasis of verse 15. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus is reminding his disciples that the purpose of light is to be seen. That's why people light a light. I think Jesus also shows here his understanding of how we might be tempted to falter as lights in the world. He knows that we may be tempted to hide our light so that it will not shine as it should, or at least others won't see it shine. But this would only be a way of denying who we really are, wouldn't it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his now famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, that, quote, flight into this invisible, or flight into the invisible, excuse me, is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Now, he was writing that as a man who saw this happening in Nazi Germany, where Christians hid instead of saying anything when everything was going bad in Germany. Most Christians just hid. They didn't want to speak up. 
They didn't want to end up in a concentration, in a concentration camp. They didn't want to be persecuted. Of course, he, he fled the country and then later, later on went back and was captured and hung uh, because he wanted to live out what he wrote. He wanted to live this out. He, he didn't want to hide. But he's right. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. Uh, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Now, I'm not saying that there are times in uh, the history of the church when Christians haven't rightly conducted their worship in secret. But they didn't live their lives in secret. They didn't run off and hide all the time. The only way they could have a time of worship together was to do it in secret. But they were doing that so they could refuel, so they could get back out into the world to be lights, not because they were running away from their call. And we shouldn't do that either. There's, such a community has lost sight of its ultimate purpose, which takes us to our final point, fourth point. We give off light that brings glory to God. That's the whole point of it. This, I think, is derived from verse 16 pretty clearly. Let your light so shine before men. Don't try to hide it. That's going to be your temptation, particularly when you're persecuted. But instead, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Notice here that Jesus contemplates a positive reaction to our witness in addition to his previous stress on the negative reaction that would result in persecution, which he was speaking of particularly in verses 10 through 12, as we've seen. In this way, I think Jesus gives a a very strong encouragement to persevere in good works, to not hide our light, because God will use our witness to bring glory to himself. Yes, we may be persecuted, but it will be worth it. Will be worth it. But notice also, though, that it's only the kind of righteousness that so commonly results in persecution that also leads some to glorify God. That is, if we want to have the kind of witness that will lead others to worship God with us, then we will also want to have the kind of witness that elicits persecution. Because a true Witness for Christ, shining as Christ shined in the world, leads to both of these things. And you don't get one without the other, not in the teaching of our Lord Jesus. He was never surprised when he was persecuted, nor was he shocked when people were saved. Both of those things should have been happening. He expected both of those results. And he's teaching his disciples, he's teaching us, we if we live like him, should expect both of these things to be happening as well. The kind of witness that leads others to worship God with us, to glorify God with us, is the kind of witness that will lead many people to persecute us as well. But that's all right with us, isn't it? We're okay with that. Because ultimately our suffering and enduring a persecution is worth it, both for our own good and for God's glory. And Jesus has taught both of those concepts in this passage, 
in this larger context. It's worth it for our own good, as we've already seen. Verses 10 through 12, when Jesus said, Blessed are those, blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Already he's telling us it's worth it if we're blessed. Why is it worth it? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, he says, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as, as we saw when we looked, we're in good company. We get to have the same kind of reward they have, but with it comes the same kind of persecution they endured. It's for our own good, ultimately. We get a great reward. We get to be in heaven forever with Jesus, as we just sung about before. Joining in with the angels and falling before him and worshiping him. Great is our reward in heaven. It's for our good, but it's also, as we've just seen, for God's glory here in verse 16. It's so that others will glorify God. Not just us, but others. We glorify God by trying to lead others to glorify God. And it's really good for us to do that. As I said in a previous message, our good and God's glory are not two separate ends here. They're tied together in God's plan, in his loving, gracious plan. To seek his glory is the very best thing we can do for ourselves. And if we're set out to do the very best things we can do for ourselves, we will always want to glorify him. You just can't have one without the other. And that's very clear from the teaching of our Lord. It flows out of texts like this. So Jesus is teaching here in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount that those who are part of the kingdom will lead the kind of righteous lives that challenge others to make a decision for or against him. That's the point of our being here. And Paul and Barnabas, as we saw, understood that very well. Persecuted by the Jews, while the Gentiles were rejoicing that they got to take part in this salvation. This was happening in their ministry, just as Jesus said it would. Suffering persecution for a great reward and for the glory of God. As others, in spite of their persecution, came to know Christ as Savior. This is the kind of thing we can expect to happen. It happened all through the pages of the New Testament. It's happened throughout the history of the church. And it's going to happen in our lives too. Because we're not greater than our master. If this was God's plan for him, and he's told us it's God's plan for us, then we should indeed rejoice. But perhaps each one of us should ask him or himself or herself a question. Do I live the kind of life that confronts people with a clear choice between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world? If you're a true believer, then you'll surely be able to answer this question in the affirmative. However imperfectly you may feel that you shine before men. And even if you feel like you would like to shine a lot better. 
Kent Hughes uh, is again helpful when he ponders an answer to, to this question in a very good commentary on this passage when he writes this. The question is, how can we shine even more? A man returning from a journey brought his wife a matchbox that would glow in the dark. And after he gave it to her, she turned out the light, but it could not be seen. Both thought that they had been cheated. Then the wife noticed some French words on the box and asked a friend to translate them. And the the inscription on the box said this, If you want me to shine in the night, keep me in the light. And so it is with us. We must expose ourselves to Jesus, delight in his word, and spend time in prayer soaking up his rays. That's how we'll shine better. If we shine because of our relationship to Jesus, and if we feel like we're not shining like we should, then what's the answer to that? A deeper relationship with Jesus. Looking into his word, praying, seeking his help. Making use of yet another metaphor, Jesus taught on another occasion that we can never bring glory to the Father aside from our close relationship to him when he said that he's a vine and we're branches. In John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. That should tell us something. If we're not shining as we should, if we're not bearing fruit as we should, or as we'd like to, if we feel like we're failing in that, we're forgetting something very important. We're probably trying to live without him. And he said, without me, you can do nothing. If we feel like we're doing nothing, maybe we're trying to live without him. He then said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We shine to glorify God, we bear fruit to glorify God, and when we're failing to do that, we've taken our eyes off Jesus. We shut the light off in our life, and it won't shine through us. Christians can can do this. Sometimes when people aren't reflecting the light of Christ like they should, it's because they're not true believers. They're phony. We've been around, most of us, on this planet long enough to know there are plenty of people out there like that who profess to know Christ. We've got a president like that who professes to know Christ but is a heretic through and through. He's not shining for Jesus, even though he professes to know him as Lord and Savior. We've got people like that all around us. I don't think we have people like that here, although we may have a few people here who have grown weary in well-doing and have started to hide their light a little bit and who need to be reminded who they're supposed to be in this world. And that they can be who they're supposed to be if they're trusting in Jesus instead of themselves like they're supposed to. So that's the answer. Trusting the Lord. That's what it boils down to. 
saying to him, Lord, I want to be who you've called me to be. Forgive me for not being who you've called me to be. Give me your strength through the power of your spirit to be who you've called me to be. Give me the courage I need. More importantly, realign my thinking so that I see that this is for your glory and for my good, as well as the good for everyone around me. Help me to see that when I suffer persecution, it's not something to be thought of as you hating me or being angry at me, but it's just part of the cost of doing business in this world as a Christian. And accept it. And with the, with the apostles, rejoice that I'm being effective for you. May we all learn to say sincerely with the psalmist, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and because of your truth. Let's pray. Holy Father, I hope I've been an encouragement to my brothers and sisters in Christ today. We live in a very evil generation. There's wickedness all around us. And we do get so tired of having to see it that we retreat. We love you. We want to be witnesses, but part of our problem is we just can't bear to even look on what's happening around us. It's too much. And we, and we retreat partly for that reason. We feel overwhelmed. Lord, help us to overcome those feelings so that we can be more effective witnesses for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to overcome our sinful bent toward always taking the easiest path, the path of least resistance. Help us not to be so self-deceived. And forgive us, Lord, I pray, in any way that we falter. But we also want to thank you for all the many good things you're doing in us. Because however imperfectly we may feel we're shining for you, we have been shining. And it's because of you And you deserve all the glory for it. And we thank you for it. And we just want more of it is all. So help us to be more faithful, I pray. We'll give you all the glory. Because you alone deserve it. pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.